I'm Dave Minocco, the Alan Meyer Family Head of School at Parish Episcopal School. Welcome to the From My Angle podcast. Well, it's been a while, my friends. You may recall that I mentioned at the conclusion of our last podcast with Parish's academic leaders that I was going to be away for a bit, occupied at the end of September serving as chair of an accrediting team visiting Cassidy School in Oklahoma City. So I'm back with lessons learned from that visit that will certainly inform the podcast episodes of this month of October. Heads of school like me are asked to serve in this capacity as accreditation chairs every couple of years. It's an exhilarating and demanding set of four days. We lead a team of teachers and administrators from the 90-plus schools in the Independent Schools Association of the Southwest that accredits schools like Parrish. My recent experience was with 18 such administrators and colleagues, a fantastic team who I think served Cassidy well. We spend time on campus meeting with school constituents, assuring adherence to key accreditation standards, and writing a lengthy report that helps in this case, Cassidy fulfilled its mission most optimally in the decade ahead. I mention all this in the context of the podcast, given our theme of reconnect and reset. Connecting to another school, as one does when you visit it for a period of time and learn a lot about it, casts one's own school in a new light. In essence, you reconnect with your school seeing it refracted through the culture and practices and programs of the peer school. So it was on my recent trip to Cassidy. They, like us, have reached a noteworthy milestone in their school's history. As Parrish celebrates our 50th anniversary this year, Cassidy will celebrate their 75th next year. Unlike Parrish, however, a school that started small as Parrish Day and became an entirely new entity in Parrish Episcopal, During its five decades of existence, Cassidy has existed on its present beautiful campus, serving the same dimensions of students in its pre-K through 12 form since its founding in 1947. Among the most interesting and challenging dynamics I witnessed during my time serving as Cassidy's visitation chair was how a school community like theirs, with families whose lines of connection run multiple generations deep, must navigate the choppy waters between the rocks of cherished tradition on one side and those of necessary evolution on the other. All businesses, of course, with loyal customers, deep emotional connections to their product face this same challenge. Schools like Parrish and Cassidy are no different. It strikes me then that in complicated and rapidly changing times like these, it serves businesses well to bring stakeholders together to reconnect with the values that bind them as a community. Communities can honor their past by reconnecting to those values and identity markers that initially drew members of the community together. From that point of commonality, they can launch forward and work together on charting the course of necessary evolution that every dynamic organization must ultimately pursue. With this said, I introduce the two podcast episodes for the month of October. Later this month, Parish alumni parent Ann Mukherjee, CEO of North America for beverage company Pernod Ricard, will join me. Ann and I will talk together as two CEOs about the post-pandemic challenge of reconnecting our companies and the communities they serve to our organization's mission, vision, and purpose. But in this initial October episode, I am so excited to present the first of our Parish Connection episodes for the upcoming season. Each month, henceforth, I will gather individuals with important connections to the history of Parish Day or Parish Episcopal to revisit our school's history, our unique narrative, and extol our community's defining traits and values. Staging these conversations affords us the ancillary benefit of building an audio history of Parish, and we can add to the school's archives which Kristen Toomey told us about in the season's third episode. So we begin appropriately today in this episode with two individuals whose relationship with Parrish dates back to the earliest days. Bert Blair's name should sound familiar with those who are well-versed with Parrish's past. His mom, Mary, was the founder of Parrish Day in 1972. Bert's dad served on the vestry of the Episcopal Church of the Transfiguration in the years that Parrish Day was birthed. Bert and his family remain very active in our community, attending events, 
sponsoring a scholarship in Mary's name given annually to a graduating senior preparing to study education in college and even caring for the campus grounds as Burt's business, Yellow Rose, has for decades. The father, Reverend Terry Roper, was the third rector of Transfiguration, serving from 1976 to 1999. Father Roper saw Parish Day emerge under Mary Blair, flourish under Gloria Snyder, and prepare to expand to become Parish Episcopal. Like Bert, Terry remains very active in our community, attending events like the recent opening of the Noble Family Performing Arts Center and our 8th grade moving up ceremony each spring where a rising ninth grade student receives an honor named for Father Roper. We are fortunate to have these two foundational figures in Parish's history with us today. Enjoy this conversation with Bert Blair and Terry Roper. Well, as the kids say, it's been a minute, everyone. Welcome back to the From Angle podcast. I'm so glad to be back with you for October episodes that are sure to be exciting in our year of looking at reconnecting and resetting. As I had mentioned last month, I was off at the end of September accrediting a school, Cassidy School in Oklahoma City. And it was interesting to see that school as it approaches its 75th anniversary, moving through much of the challenge and mesh uh, that goes along with evolving as a school still steeped in deep tradition. And so it is that as I come into this month of October, I'm excited to uh, talk and think about on these episodes in October, what it means to be rooted as an institution to values and traditions, even as you look forward to evolving as a place. We're welcoming parents on campus this month in October to talk about parishes, defining identities and values. And I'm excited in that context to have the first of the Parish Connection episodes that will be a feature of the podcast for the remainder of the year, each month, going back into our history as an institution to talk with critical people who had an important role in the history of Parish Day and Parish Episcopal. And today we're starting with two people whose history and past take us to the very origin days of Parish Day. Bert Blair is son of the founder of our school, Mary Blair. Instrumental in getting our school started along with his father uh, in those early years at the Transfiguration Campus. Bert and his family remain so active in our campus community today. We're blessed uh, to have them uh, sponsoring a scholarship for seniors uh, coming to events on campus regularly. And if you've seen those yellow, yellow rose trucks on campus, that's Bert's company taking care of the landscaping at Midway. And Father Terry Roper is the third rector of the Episcopal Church of the Transfiguration, our birth uh, church. And, uh, Father Roper was um, there for 23 years from 1976 to 1999 and saw it all, the founding of the school essentially in those early years with Mary, uh, the uh, time that Gloria began to consider expanding the school and the ultimate birth, ultimate for uh, an eventual birth of Parish Episcopal. So we couldn't have two better people to be with us to talk about the history of Parish Day. So welcome, y'all. It's great to be with you. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. Going to be fun. So let's uh, let's save the parish connection stories for a little bit down the road and help our listeners just get to know you all a little bit better. So let's break it into three buckets where you were born and raised, where you went to school and how you found your professional calling. So, Father Roper, we'll start. uh, We'll start with you. Well, I'll start by assuring you that my accent is genuine. In spite of the fact that you all think that I have an accent, I do not, of course. You have the accent, but we won't quarrel. I was born in Portsmouth in Hampshire in England, June the 21st, 1935, which is the longest day of the year. I was born grievy, as you can tell. I was born in the Star Hotel, Lake Road, Portsmouth. My mother had not just stopped by for a quick gin and tonic. Uh, She lived there. We owned the building. And so that was where I was born. But I got out of there by the time I was nine months old and went to Purbrook, a little village in the country. And uh, that's where I spent most of my childhood and growing up time. Um, I joined the church choir when I was eight, which was my first experience of the church. And uh, in spite of the fact that it was across the other side of the road, I still didn't venture in there till I was eight to find out anything. And around about the time I was 10, I decided that this was for me. I wanted to be a priest. And 
I never did change that desire the whole time. I never wanted to be an engine driver or a fireman or any of those good things. I wanted to be a priest. And when I was 10, I wrote to the bishop and asking him to reserve me a place at Chichester Theological College. I think he must have been somewhat surprised by that because he can't have had many applications from 10-year-olds or 12-year-olds, I was then, uh, to get that. Anyway, in... Um, I went to uh, Perlbrook Park County High School, which was the grammar school in the local area for uh, all of my education there. And then I went into Her Majesty's Royal Air Force when I, in 1954, I was a medic at Middle Wallop um, uh, Air Force Station. That's one of the famous five wallops, over wallop, under wallop, nether wallop, far wallop, and middle wallop. And I, the air station was at Middle Wallop. How British can that be? In 1956, I went to King's College London to the Department of Theology to start my training for the priesthood. And in 1959, to St. Boniface Theological College in Warminster, Wiltshire on the Salisbury Plain. Another one of those very picturesque and beautiful places, a wonderful place to do your finishing year in Theological College. I was made a deacon in 1960, a priest in 1961 and began my work in the ministry at St. John's Fort and Gosport, which is on the wrong side of Portsmouth Harbour. All the social and fun things are all on the other side of the harbour, but we had the, the hard work on the, in the dockyard area. In 1963, I came to the United States to go to St. Albans, Arlington, Texas, where I was a curate. In 1965, to St. Thomas's on Dinwood and Inwood in Mockingbird, where I was again a curate. And in 1967, I became rector of Grace Church in Oak Cliff. In 1972, the rector of Redeemer in Irving. And in 1976, rector of Transfiguration. That's my story. That's my song. And you're sticking to it, as they say. That's right. Praising my Savior all the day long. <laughs> Fabulous. Bert, Bert, why don't you take us through your story? All right. Uh, my story is close-knit to this right here in this area because I was born in 1953 in Dallas, Texas. And, uh, and, and at that time, uh, my dad was, was doing construction work uh, and my mother was actually doing teaching work. So uh, we moved uh, to Richardson, Texas, which at that time was a brand-new community, suburb north of Dallas. And so I, the rest of my growing up days was uh, in Richardson. I went to Richardson High School. And uh, during that time, my dad was in the home building business, building houses all over Richardson, uh, and also built Caney Creek Country Club, which is in North Richardson at the time. And it was uh, the place to be. Uh, but at that time also, he got in with a group of builders. Uh, and, and basically, I got to do all their stuff in the in the summers. I, I worked in various aspects of all their construction because uh, my dad knew I, I enjoyed being outside and I was also an athlete. So he wanted me to, to work outside all the time. So uh, that got me into the, the landscape business or my dad basically saw that uh, I enjoyed doing that. And so I worked for the park department in the city of Richardson for two summers uh, and enjoyed that. So that took me to getting into a landscape architecture program. So the only schools in the South that had that program at the time was Texas Tech, Texas A&M and LSU. Uh, and I chose Tech because we had a, about a hundred people from our high school going there. So it was kind of a reunion going out to Texas Tech at that time. So my junior year of college, uh, unfortunately my dad passed away. His builder friends all got together and called me and said, when I got out of school, because of the work that I'd done for them growing up, basically 14 and 15 years old, they wanted me to go back in business for myself and they would take care of me. So that's what I did. And I started Burt Blair and Associates the day I got out of school. And I worked uh, with that for about three to four years. And at that time, uh, I was doing mostly residential work. And Roger Stahlback, who was my mentor in high school, with Fellowship of Christian Athletes uh, called me and he remembered me 
and said, do you want to buy my landscape company? And uh, it was kind of a no brainer because I was going to take over 30 of his properties at the same time. I was going to start mine and I was only going to pay him what I could pay him do the proceeds from his properties. So it was, that's how Yellow Rose started. And the name Yellow Rose started because in our initial meeting, he wanted to make sure that anything that we did was tied to Texas, if not Dallas. So obviously the, the, the name Yellow Rose stuck and that's how Yellow Rose started 39 years ago. Ah, it's amazing. I've known both of you now, this is my 13th year at Parish, and in each tidbit, I learned things that I didn't know. Really, most interesting among them, how early both of you felt your call, like Father Terry's letter to the bishop at 10, and then Bert really, that your dad was in the home building business. I would have I've forgotten that if I knew it, and that that really led to you at a very early age of 14 or so getting into the uh, landscape architect business. Yes, and that's, that's really what... Uh, yeah. So that's that's what I stuck with, and obviously, I've, uh, since I've started the business, I'm I've stayed I've stuck with it, and I don't know I'll never retire because I really enjoy doing what I do, and I'm outside all the time. So how can you beat that? No, you both are you both are young and spry of heart. There is no question, and you both knew Parish Day from its earliest years. So um, Bert again is the son of the founder, and Terry is an Episcopal priest in the diocese at the time. Do you have a singular first memory of Parish Day, Bert? Do you, do you do you are able to call call one to mind? Well, let me go back to, to a little bit uh, in thinking of the first days of Parish is is how Parish actually uh, how my mother got involved. If you want to go, if you want to start there, uh, because my dad was on the vestry, and uh, one Sunday after after church. They had a vestry meeting and obviously they collected all the money from the plates and counted the money. And there was not, not a whole lot uh, at that time at church of the transfiguration, but the school was there, but the school was going out. They had a lot of problems uh, internal and uh, a lot of the kids were leaving. And uh, Mary Blair knew a lot of the kids that were leaving just from their church families. And that and school was called the uh, that school was called the Episcopal School of Northwood, correct? Yeah, that the church yes. initially partnered with, correct? That's correct. That's yep. correct. And so, uh, in that vestry meeting after church, uh, they found out all the information that the school was basically going to go away, and it was an integral part of the church. Uh, it was because it took care of the little kids. I mean, it was all preschool, and so uh, basically after that meeting, they came back, and I, I can remember this like it was yesterday. We had a we had a late lunch and he basically brought up that the school was going out and they're looking for somebody to maybe take it over because they wanted to have a school. And basically, my dad asked Mary Blair, would you be interested in helping out? And uh, it didn't take long. She said, absolutely. And I can remember not finishing lunch and driving back over to the church and going through the buildings, trying to figure out what's there, what's not there, what, how do you get started? And this was, like, this was essentially the late spring of 1972 in the months before the founding of Parish Day. That's exactly right. Exactly right. And so... So how old were you then, Bert? You were... You, how old were you? You were 18. 18. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm, this is our 50-year anniversary at Richardson High School. So right. yeah. they coincide. So... And so that was very proximate then to your dad's passing a couple of years preceding your, dad, your dad's untimely death. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. So, uh, yeah. So it, so it, that, that basically we went through boxes that same afternoon, for, spent a couple of hours going through boxes, trying to figure out what was there and what the school had and didn't have. And there wasn't a whole lot there, uh, unfortunately. Uh, and I can remember her walking down the sidewalks from building to building, picking up pencils and picking up anything that she thought she might be able to use in, in the school's founding. Uh, and, and we got back home and, and, and my dad said, you know, there is no budget. So we have to figure out how we're going to do this and with the vestry. And so that started all that communication. And wow. that's, and that's, that's how the, that she got started uh, basically by herself. And we were over there for the next, next week going through everything that was there trying to figure out what do we do next yeah and, and whereas uh whereas other school founders uh would have uh months if not years to plan for the opening of a of a school uh your your mom i think 
uh, by the vestries uh, t- titling in their in their minutes uh, referred to as the interim head of school, you know, was asked to start that was asked to start this thing in 90 days, you know, hire teachers and get students to stay or come and figure out where the desks and all the materials were going to come from. It's a remarkable first story. Exactly right. Exactly yeah. right. Yes. Father Roper, you were you were in the diocese, but not at at uh, at uh, Transfiguration at the time. Do you have a first memory of of Parish? Yes, I do. Um, I, I I remember coming to, uh, after I'd been elected rector. Uh, I remember ca- coming up to the school to have a sort of general interview with everybody, and of course that included Mary Blair. And uh, she was very gracious, and she took me around a little tour of the school to see what was there to see. And I was impressed by the fact there was anything there at all because. Uh, I had heard the story about how they had uh, uh, gone up to the school after the previous school had pulled out and had found virtually nothing there to work with. And uh, one of the stories that I remember about Mary is a a joke that uh, Lois Waller, who was a great friend of hers and was the parish secretary, they were as thick as thieves, the two of them. And uh, I remember Lois saying to me, I hadn't been in the building 10 minutes before Lois said to me, watch out for your your pencils. I said, why? She said, Mary Blair's just coming in the door and she's always looking for pencils because the kids don't have any pencils. I discovered that that was, of course, a joke. They they did have, but that was the reputation that the school was so poor. Mary was picking up pencils and maybe she did. But the fact of the matter is, I got a very, very quickly, I got the impression, the very lasting impression stayed with me that some people have the right name, and Mary Loving Moore did have mm-hmm. the right name. Her middle name, Loving, there, mm-hmm. um, uh, she was certainly a very loving and wonderful person. I was very, very fond of her. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the school was, even when I got there in 76, was pretty desperate for everything. Of course, desperate for space. There was no place to put anything. I had the impression that that if I opened a, a closet door, I might find three children and a teacher. I wouldn't have been at all surprised to find that was the case. My <laughs> office was shared with one of the classes, I think, as I remember back. And, and this was such a horrendous experience that I remember it not, not very gladly that I shared as an office, I shared a room with the first grade. There was an accordion uh, door that separated the classroom from my office and I could hear everything that happened in the classroom. And they, of course, could hear me on the telephone in my office. It was not the most, uh, the, the best possible place. But uh, I remember the love there was for the children. Mm-hmm. And that's why I remember Mary so well. And I think uh, the other thing that I picked up on very quickly was Mary led the team on this. But the members of the school board, which was a very primitive affair indeed, they were all very loving and very dedicated. Mm. Uh, They had almost nothing to be dedicated with or about, but my God, they were dedicated. They really were. And uh, it given such a, a difficult start, a really difficult start, one had to admire the vision. Uh, that there was there in in uh, Mary and in the board who working with so little were determined to get this school going and off the ground and unfortunately I would have to say that uh, the truth of the thing is that much as the vestry wanted the school the church was on the edge of bankrupt when I took over in 76 Mm -hmm. and there was no money to support the school the, the church ought to have been helping the school. It couldn't do it. It didn't have the money to pay the bills to start with. Well, yeah, that's bad. That's fascinating. So really, if, if the school made any progress, it was on Mary Blair's back that it was made entirely. Picking up those, picking up those, picking up those pencils metaphorically. But yeah, for the for, for our listeners who are familiar with the Hillcrest campus, my understanding is the present Niles Building and the present Beasley STEM Center, basically the two buildings that you first see walking down the the, yes. the the path toward toward the now main building were the only two buildings that were there at the founding of the school right and so everything was everything was there all those little pre-k through four in the, children in the, in the niles building right it's the day school office mary blair and her secretary she had one to work with and there was the rector's office and the curate's office and the children from the day school and one toilet 
Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. With little kids, for heaven's sake, you know what that was like. <laughs> Just amazing. So, Bert, I want to circle back to this uh, because this is an interesting dynamic as I think about this a little bit off script. But with your dad passing, you know, essentially at the time that your mom was tackling this momentous challenge that Terry has just laid out, you know, she was dealing with the, the sudden grief and loss of your dad and the challenge of mounting the school. You were away at tech. But I mean, what do you recall about, um, you know, how she threw herself into the work and whether it was fueled in part by her grief? Like, what, what do you pull back from all that? You know, it's it's uh, it's funny that you asked that because other people have said the same thing at the infancy of the school. Uh, with my dad passing, uh, she she was so strong, uh, and she, she she had the vision, the strength, and and the momentum behind the the, the all the parents and the staff. Uh, it was it, 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 and they all showed up obviously at his funeral, one of the biggest funerals they said they've ever had, and so not only from the school, but from the community, uh, because everybody was so entrenched in what was going on. And so I, she didn't, let me put it this way. She, she, her griefing period was to herself because mm -hmm. she never showed it. She, she said, she basically said, I, I can't grieve too long. And we had this discussion, a family discussion, uh, because I was home for a week, uh, during his passing from tech. And we had a lot of talk and meetings and family. And, and she said, you know, you, you've basically got, we have to move on. Uh, we've have too much going on. And I had a younger brother and a younger sister at home too, at that time. So, uh, so with that all being said, that she, I, I, she grieved, but she didn't show it. And so I, I, and, and everybody that was around her said, she just had the vision that she can't, she didn't have time. I mean, she had to, she had to work through this very quickly because it was very sudden, sudden heart attack that he passed away uh, with, with no, uh, no illnesses. So it was very, very, very sudden and uh, happened just on a morning that he got up and passed away. So it's one of those things. So anyway, we got, you have to go through that kind of thing in different ways, but uh, basically the strength that she told us in our, in our family meeting was, we have to be stronger. We have in our faith and our Christianity, we have to be stronger that he's in a better place. Uh, and we have to, we have our own lives to live. And yeah. so you work through that. Yeah, it's amazing. And, you know, for me, like my antenna around this narrative of parish and these stories are what's, what's imbued itself in the culture of the school. Right. And so I hear you all talking about this fortitude of Mary, this, this notion that, as I say, often at parish, anything is possible like that's part of our institutional fiber, this love of children, uh, each in their own individuality, this uh, this this um, centrality of faith in our community. So, you you know, you can hear it in the personal stories of those individuals that got us started and put their fingerprints on these places. And I think that's why it's so important um, in these times of complexity and change as we evolve forward, not to lose a sense of some of these very core elements that were part of our of our founding. You know, Father Terry, interestingly enough, at about the time that you were becoming rector a couple years earlier, Father Swan was also starting an Episcopal school, Episcopal school of Dallas, coming out of another parish in Dallas, St. Michael's. And so it was interesting to me, the juxtaposition of, of Parish Day and Episcopal school of Dallas starting effectively within a couple of years of each other, what did what did you what did you um, sense or know about that as a diocesan priest about the emergence of these two Episcopal schools? Was that something that was talked about or very very commonplace to to, to discuss or not so much? The answer is yes and no. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, in the sense that St Michael's School, which was essentially coming out of St Michael's School to become the Episcopal School of Dallas, and there was quite a lot of talk about that, and I think. Uh, Steve spoke at the uh, diocesan convention mm -hmm. about it. I mean, there were it was a, it was a big deal. Mm -hmm. But compared to St Michael's on the move to become another school in another location, um, Transfiguration's parish school was was insignificant. It really was. I don't think anybody, much except people in the parish, knew anything about it. I'm certainly the bishop did, no question about that. But I think it was much more of a localized thing. It was a big deal for us 
but I don't think that it was for, um, I mean, for transfiguration, it was a big deal, but it was, uh, I don't think for the diocese, it was of any great moment. And there certainly wasn't any help, financial or, or otherwise, from the diocese to, to help Mary in her major project that she'd undertaken. That's for sure. Yeah, because Bert, in those early years, really, those first four or five years of, that uh, Father Roper's describing, it was really serving families of the church and of Northwood, correct? That's yes. correct. Because, you know, that was, we're up in the boonies. We're up in North Dallas, above right. north of LBJ. There weren't that many families. So it was it, it was a family. Everybody knew everybody. Wow. So yeah. it, it was that type of community at that time. So, Father Roper, you mentioned uh, being in Niles building with all those youngins underfoot in one restroom. But I, I don't know if in your previous rectorships you had had a school um, as part of your oversight. So when you got to when you got to the fig, what, what did you discover to be the joys and the headaches of being a rector of a of a, of a church with a school as a mission? Well, yes, I think the most the, the, I want to start with the joys. There's no question about that. I mean, it really it was wonderful to have a nice little school found, founded on Christian principles entirely and operating well. Um, I remember with such absolute joy um, being asked to take the service every Thursday morning for the whole school, which was divided eventually into two chapels. They came at two different times. I remember with such pleasure uh, looking up from the back of the Niles building, as it now is, up toward the church. Remember, none of the uh, labyrinth or any of that was there. It was just the church on its own, standing rather like Fort Knox up on the hill there, you know. And watching the children go up from that classroom area, the little ones who held a rope. I had not seen that before. It was a new experience for me, a rope with knots in it. And each kid had a knot. And so they held on to the knot and up to church they went in the crocodile so that they would not get lost and find their way in. And I was very uh, amused the first time I was asked to, uh, my, uh, if I would go up and conduct to the chapel. And, of course, I, I had asked Mary a few things about what to do. And she said, no, we want them to kneel down. But don't forget to warn them all several times before they kneel to pull their toes back. Otherwise, the kneeling less will go down on their toes. And, of course, I did not remember to do that. And so there were several squeals from <laughs> as everybody knelt on the kneeler under which someone's foot was located. Not good. But I remember with great happiness uh, when we introduced the business about birthday books. We were trying to build a little library, even in those days, trying, you know. And uh, uh, I, I think it was Mary who got the idea that maybe the children's parents would like to give a book on their birthdays. Well, I seized upon that once she told me about it. And so every time it was my day, Thursday, I would always make a big fuss of the kid who had the book. And they'd come up with their book and we would put, I would show the pictures of it and say something about the book, put it in and it would be taken down to the library. Well, of course, that became a daily thing. You think about it, you know, that's like 300 books a year going into the library. It got to the point that we didn't, <clears throat> excuse me, we didn't trust the parents to choose the books anymore. Uh, one of the teachers had made up a, a special place in the little library that was an empty shelf and had to put books that we wanted in there. And so when a parent would say, oh, it's my child's birthday and I didn't remember my book, we had a book for them right there and also $12, please. And that went into the funds. You see, every little amount. I remember things like that with such pleasure. Oh, it's so pleasurable. <laughs> it so and, in and in fact, we still, you know, we still do that to Hillcrest yeah, Campus to this day. We I still know. do we still do birthday books. Yeah. yeah it's, the kids bring, when you bring books a, in. a thousand or more kids in your school and they're all going to have a birthday, a, ri a rich harvest may be reaped today yeah. with care. Right. I remember also with great joy the Christmas pageants. I know sometimes I'm sure that the, the teachers must have thought this is the annual nightmare because you had to train all these kids to be Joseph and Mary and sheep and shepherds and Lord knows what else. You know, we made up characters that the God wouldn't have recognized in the, in the Christmas plays and had them all in. Everybody had a part, something to do. 
And uh, I, as I recall, we had three separate performances. There was the itty bitties department, you know, who basically stood there. And then we had the next group. I think that was like second grade and above and a bit there. And th then the, 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 the next ones we had, we went up as eventually as far as sixth grade and they, they had a carol service. But nevertheless, it was a, a very wonderful thing. The church was packed to suffocation with parents and grandparents and uh, uh, it, it was always a great thing, and I, I loved it and, and always found it amusing that on some occasions after the stage cleared, there would be a wet patch in one point on the, on the marble, indicating somebody simply couldn't wait any longer for the law. <laughs> it's a big stage. Stage fright's a real thing, Terry. That's right. <laughs> really, you have no idea how much joy I get looking back on some of these things. Yeah, they're, one, they're wonderful. They are so, so wonderful. Great. So That's wonderful great. to capture. Oh, yeah. never knew, you never knew what was going to happen. You know, yeah, oh, every day is a different adventure. With that age, kid. Yeah, yeah. No, no question. And so, Bert, you know, your mom uh, stayed until 1979 and then gave way uh, as head of school to uh, my, uh, my predecessor, Gloria Snyder. So I mentioned in this time period, like what you remember, did she, was she reluctant to step down, your mom, or was she ready? Um, was it a happy time for your family or one where the family felt some loss? Like, how, how would you describe that period when she stepped away from the role? Well, she she had uh, indicated when she after she had got the school started and started first grade that uh, she had indicated to a lot of people and she stuck to this, that she was going to take it through at a grade a year through sixth grade and then she's going to retire. Huh. She said, I can get the thing through sixth grade. And then somebody else can take it to the next level or where, wherever it might need to be. But I will have, I will have paid my dues, so to speak. And, 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 and do she did because it took, it, it probably took 10 years to get the first year or two going of her life that, uh, that she put, had to drive and put into it, but it was a seven day a week job for her. I mean, she spent every day working on that school uh, and continue to do that. And uh, so it, uh, the, the good thing is when she got to the latter years of, of her being involved with the school, uh, Gloria Snyder was my high school teacher at Richardson High School. And so she got to know Gloria back when we were in high school, and that's how she connected. And uh, obviously, she already knew Gloria. And she, she never said a word to her when they were trying to find a successor, except uh, Gloria wanted to be a part of something more than the school. She right. wanted to be part of more than Richardson High School. Uh, so, and she was a member of the Church of Transfiguration. Gloria was correct. So correct. Was that connection so, too. So, so you put the two together, yeah. and Gloria was the perfect fit. Obviously, as everybody has found out. So, yeah. and she was the one that really, uh, in in many meetings and communication, uh, she wanted to build on the school let me put it that way and take and take and start the next chapter and so uh it so she she was ready uh mary blair's went put all her dedication into getting the school started and and taking it through uh the sixth grade which is what exactly what her goal was to do and and then be a part of everything which she never missed an event uh ever that she that, that was that was going on at the school. I mean, almost up to her passing, uh, she would, you know, somebody would pick her up and take her to, to, to whatever's going on. But, but going back to, uh, to father Roper, the, the Christmas pageants were her passion. That was, you know, she, she would not miss a Christmas pageant. And it was her, that was exactly what, I mean, she literally uh, up until I think the Christmas pageant before, before she, she passed away. She was there. I mean, it's one of those things. Yeah, I remember going over to see her at her at her care residence uh, right before you know she passed. I think I may have been gone with with Glow and, and met her a couple times. She died about a decade ago or so, and right. so I met her right. a few times in my in my early in my in my early years here. And, and she just had stayed so um, so 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 connected to the to the school. And as you as you all know, I, I have a this just wonderful picture of Gloria and Mary. Um, you, you, it probably right around the time that, that glory was taken over um, right. in my in my office side by side um, standing next to one of the uh, buildings at um, at the fig and I, I see it every day when I walk out of my uh, my office to just uh, um, re remember these amazing women who uh, poured poured just so much of their time and energy uh, in, into into the place 
and, and eventually, you know, when Gloria took over, you know, this this very sweet uh, school uh, with no resource at all began to consider expansion. Now we're fast forwarding 1998, 1999, Terry, right about the time that your tenure uh, was coming to a close. And I, I, I'm interested in the emotions that uh, were swirling at the time. I, I'm sure not all of them were positive and favorable and optimistic. I'm sure there was concern and some approbation and anxiety as the church community and lay leadership of the church was thinking about this topic of expansion, especially expansion that would not be grade level on the church campus, but actually meaning that the school would move off of the campus in some form. So did this decision strain the relationship between the school and church in any way? Like, how would you capture the emotions of those final years of your tenure as expansion began to pop up? I, I don't think I would say that it strained relationships. I think there was a good deal of concern about how this could go. Was because remember, we had expanded the base of the school, the preschool and kindergarten and first grade. We'd expanded that through to double streaming in grades two first, two second, two third, up to two sixth. There was nowhere left to go. And I, I go back to my silly story about opening a broom closet. You know, that's where we were. There was no place to put another class. We put four of those um, detached uh, uh, school classrooms on the property down from where the church, well, where the, the, the labyrinth is right now. In there, there were four of those uh, temporary classrooms, temporary buildings, and uh, unlovely, they certainly were, but they served a purpose and we could get kids in and that was the main thing. And we got to the point where it was, it, we knew we had to go on. Two things drove the school, um, whether they wanted to go on or not, it, there wasn't really a lot of choice because um, the other schools of the quality uh, of the, the day school, um, the, to which our children would go for seventh grade and above, began a process of pushing us out. And I don't mean that was deliberate. I mean, they got a certain number of seats in their classrooms too. And they, what had been the case of, of uh, uh, at the end of sixth grade, some children went on to somewhere they moved. There was a lot of movement in business. People were relocating, a lot of that going on. But schools like... Um, uh, St. Mark's School of Texas, the Episcopal School, um, um, suddenly found themselves, they couldn't offer us any seats. And so when our sixth graders were going to graduate from sixth grade and go on to somewhere, there was nowhere. Where were they to go except public school? And uh, that was not what the parents wanted. So the pressure on the school to go up to seventh and above was enormous. We held back for, I'm, I'm not sure, I think two or three years that we just held it at six until it was so obvious we, we couldn't go on. We were starting to get to the point where children were not joining the school in first grade because they knew they couldn't go through seventh and above. They were getting into, uh, let's say, the Episcopal school because they knew there was continuity there. It was a major factor of what to do. And then we started looking around at what we would do at that particular point. I left soon after that, and the decisions were not made uh, with me as rector. But I know because I had contacts there, and I, I talked to Gloria frequently and, and also to Mary. From time to time, we would talk about it. And part of the problem was, where are you going to buy and, uh, at a price you can afford uh, at 30 acres or something to put a school on? It, uh, they are tremendous uses of space. It's not like an office building that you're gonna, you've got to have all sorts of adjunct things. And I don't know what the details, details are now. And you certainly certainly would know, uh, David, uh, but when you get into seventh, eighth and ninth, it's not just classrooms. You've got all manner of adjunct things in sports and in all manner of special rooms are needed. And so it goes like that suddenly. You've just got to expand. We couldn't do that. Not at that particular time, but yeah, not then, that. They, then when after I'd left and I had nothing to do with me leaving, uh, after I'd left, then they began to look for property. Then they, they struck on that uh, wonderful opportunity, the buildings you're in now. Yeah, 
at Midway. Yeah, Bert, do you remember Gloria coming back to Mary and consulting and what Mary was thinking about this whole idea of expansion? Was she pro-expansion and saw the need that Terry was describing, or did she have concerns and fears that it would bury the bury the ship? She had the same frustration that the parents had. She had she had been hearing it when the kids go to fifth and sixth grade, and I even heard about it. Uh, I don't know why I heard about it, but I did uh, because there was no place there was no place for her kids to go, mm-hmm. and so. It was the same uh, drive and direction that she said, and she and Gloria both basically labored over not only how we're going to do this, but where we're going to go, because there was no place to go. And so thankfully, uh, the hunts came through with the building. And so it's it, it's just a blessing because the hunts, uh, my, my Mary played uh, bridge with Miss Hunt, and so it was numerous times. Uh, and they always discussed about the school because mm-hmm. our kids went to went to parish also, and so they always discussed what's next, you know, those types of things. And I remember them talking about it at our house. Uh, mm-hmm. They were playing at our house, and so mm-hmm. they it was it was a big time discussion and a, and a need, and something had to be done. Mm-hmm. So I think maybe that was the inference that 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 the hunts came through because. Yeah of her playing bridge right Ms. Hutton you know it's just the start of the discussion yeah those relationships were were there and very and very grounded and authentic to the experience that they'd, they'd had at Parish Day but you know I've, I've tell people also often in recounting this narrative that you know we don't expand without Terry entertaining the questions initially because rectors could easily have put a squash on this so Terry's disposition could have been nope not going to have it and, right. and it never would have been explored and then you just get into the um, really am- amazing part of, of Gloria's uh, personal and professional composition that at a time when at, you know, nearly retirement age, she could very easily in the year 2000 have said, you know what, we're good. Um, I had a 22 year career in Richardson teaching. I've been here for, you know, at, at that point, um, you know, close to 20 years, uh, 20 years plus. Th- this is somebody else's work to do. Um, right. You know, she in the community, again, just like, put their head down and, and, and surmounted the challenge. These are some of the, you know, I think absolute elements of DNA of parish that I understood from the minute I came in 2009 and have tried to continue to nurture. And that I think are part and parcel of who we are for time immemorial, as long as leaders and community members continue to extol these values of fortitude, persistence, belief, you know, that we can accomplish anything we, we set our, we set our minds to. It's a bit of a segue to my last question for you, and this has been delightful, and I'm so appreciative of your time for doing this. But you know, we've just done our golden anniversary. You know, uh, fast forward 50 years from now, uh, they're having the they're having the hundredth anniversary of, of 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 parish, and you know, we're asking you today to put three words in a time capsule so we can open them up, and some of these key figures from parishes past, you know, pop up some words, three words that come to mind when you think of parish. What are, you know, one, two or three words that, that come to mind for, for you when you think of this place? Um, Terry, what, what are yours? I gave a lot of thought to that because I think that those words can be so significant. But I go back to the beginning of our conversation today. I think love is the first thing. Love manifested by the staff uh, into the children who you don't know what homes they come from, but they get an experience of love in the classrooms of the school, which is going to be life directing and changing. That's the first one is love. The mm-hmm. second one, um, I, it comes directly from Mary, is the dedication that she had, and Gloria had it too, to, to dedicate it to the task and staying constantly on it. So dedication is my second one. And the third one is the one which the church has to have, as well as any organization attached to it, is a vision of where we're going and what we're going to do and how we're going to. Sometimes the vision doesn't know the answer, how to find it. It, it comes along. Who knew that an oil company was going to put their uh, brand new building on the market? How could anyone know that? You couldn't know it. But the vision was there to say opportunity is just knocked on our door and we have the vision to take it. So that's my third one. Yeah, that's great. And vision, vision is just words, you know. And so yes. without, de- without dedication, 
you know, and a real commitment to the vision to see it through over those obstacles and unforeseens that you suggest, like you're not going to accomplish your vision. So your words, I think your words really run, run well together. As the Bible teaches us without vision, the people perish. Yep. Very important words. Yeah. Well said, Uh, Bert, what are your words? Well, I, I think uh, there's, I've got one word and I've got a couple of phrases because I've heard it so many times and I think yeah. it, it's a indicative of, of, of what parish is. But And I go back to the start too. Uh, this thing is Father, Father Oprah says, the very beginning, uh, I'm going to say family. Uh, mm-hmm. Family and community because the family is how we started and, and, and the whole school at the beginning was one family. And so it wasn't just made up of individuals, but everybody that came to that school knew everybody else and would do anything for anybody else. So I'm just saying the, the family is the, is the first word. And I think the school, the, the foundation of the school being part of a church, I think is, is so, so important. So I think, uh, and it's a church school excellence is what I'm gonna say is basically it's the excellence because of the Christian background of the school uh, and you start your day like that. And it, once you start your day like that, if you put your whole life like that, it, it changes, it changes everything, your daily, what you do. And so I think that's uh, the second thing that's so important. And then we've said it this all day today that you teach the kids to reach for the stars. I mean, there's, there's, there's no limit uh, to, to what you can achieve. And mm-hmm. so I think you instill that, and, and I, I hear it every time I, I'm, I'm over there at Parish once a week at mm-hmm. least. And so I hear it every time. Every time somebody's talking, that you you indic- you put in your the kids' minds that there's no limit to what you can do. Mm-hmm. Uh, reach for the stars, and and I think that's that's really what the school tries to tell everybody that you know we give you the foundation. Now it's yours. Go go run with it. Yeah. Man, that's fantastic and, and so inspirational. I can't wait to share those with uh, with members of our community moving forward. And continue to ask some of the other guests we'll have on these Parish Connection episodes over the course of the next several months, um, you know, their words. And I'm going to keep collecting uh, a set of them because these are uh, meaningful experiences for me as someone who's dedicated to and loves this school so much to um, hear the words of, of those of you who've invested so much time in our, in, in our past. And uh, we love you all for our, your commitment um, to our to our place. So, um, thanks for that. And thanks for your time on this episode. Thanks. I think it's great. Thanks for having us. We'll see you guys soon on campus. Absolutely. Yes. All right. Thank you for listening to this edition of the From My Angle podcast. Please share it with friends and colleagues in your network. In our next episode, we will feature a conversation with Parish alumni parent, Ann Mukherjee. Ann is the CEO of North America for the beverage company, Pernod Ricard. She will help us continue this month's look at how organizations reconnect to mission and values during and around periods of challenge, crisis, complexity, and change. We'll look forward to seeing you next time on the From My Angle podcast.